invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 as we're moving along this book of Hebrews today. Uh, as you flip there, I want to invite you to do something with me that, uh, or as you scroll there or pull it up on your tablet or phone, uh, I want you to do something once you find it and uh, something I've never started out a sermon with, but I'm going to try it today, see how this goes. I want you to close your eyes. Everybody in the room, just close your eyes. And I want you to enter with me into the ancient temple, the temple that would have been constructed right before Jesus came to earth. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine the sights as you're seeing people moving in thousands of goats and lambs and ox and doves, you know, birds to be offered as sacrifices. Imagine the call of the shofars, they blow the horn in anticipation of the offerings that will be given for atonement. Imagine with me the smell of livestock, that number of livestock and the people that are tending to them. I want you to imagine not just the smell of the livestock, but hear them, hear them calling, hear the, hear the baw of the lamb, hear the, hear the crying of the ox, hear the crying of the goats, uh, and see, see the priest Take the blade and slit the throat of that lamb or that goat. See the blood pour out. Smell it. Smell the blood as it pours from that animal's body. And imagine here, you are hearing, you are seeing, and you are smelling death. Now open your eyes. I wanted to give you a very vivid picture. There was actually a video I wanted to show you this morning of a reenactment of the Passover, of the sacrifice of a lamb. I showed it to the deacons this morning, and after one of them threw up, we decided not to do it. Anyway, he didn't actually throw it. They said, you know, Pastor, that might be a little bit too violent for those that are animal lovers. And I said, I understand. I understand it's offensive. It's meant to be offensive. Because we need to understand and see the offense of sin against a holy God. Let's, let's look at this text together this morning and see this clearly in the Word, uh, beginning in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, are you going to? Are you going to do it? Okay. It doesn't matter to me. I just didn't want to fight with you. Okay, there we go. Otherwise, uh, I'm going to put mine down. You're going to do it then. I like it better that way. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a, a body have you prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desire nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. 
these are offered according to the law. And then he had it. Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sacrificed, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Now, I love this last part, church. Let's read these last three words together. Once for all. May God have blessing to the reading of His holy and errant and inspired word. And I pray He writes this truth on all of our hearts this morning. In this passage, the author here is battling a group of Hebrews in the first century who are wanting to go back to a religious, rigorous system where they are coming in every year offering sacrifices. They're kind of wanting to trust Jesus and return back to the religious rigor that they were used to. Uh, I have to say that if I were to survey all the peoples who have ever lived, perhaps some of the most religious people on the planet that have ever existed are the Jews of old. Because you see, the Jews had to, uh, their religion dictated what clothes that they wore, how they cut their hair, what they said when they went in their home, what they said when they went out of their home, what they said when they entered the gate, what they said when they went out of the gate, what they would do with their livestock, what they would do with the best of their livestock, what they would eat, what threads they could put on their body, and what they could not. There are a few religious people that could uh, say that it is as rigorous as it was for the Jews of the Old Testament, not to mention the fact of the continual amount of sacrifices. There were sin atonements. There were those sins atonements that you had to give for those of omission and commission. I think Michael mentioned that a minute ago when he was up here. Those that you knew you did, and just in case you didn't cover it all, had to offer an offering for the sins that you did that you didn't realize that you did. And on and on this went year in and year out. You see, he is breaking down for these people what I would call lostology. He is making sure they understand. He's telling them, look, look closely at these sacrifices that are being offered here because you need to understand something. The, the sacrificial system that God put in place, the one that God ordained and gave to the Levites, the one that you have followed for thousands of years and that you are so anxious to return back to, you need to understand its shortcomings before a holy God. And that's what we're talking about this morning here. Have you ever just stopped and pondered the question here, right? Because uh, <laughs> I think at a very base level here, we sometimes question, is it really that simple? Is it really a question here of, uh, did God really say this? This is really the answer to our sin problem. Uh, is God really that good? It feels like I should put a bit more effort into it as if I get a few more points for this happening. But you need to realize, you know, we're all rank sinners before a holy God. We as church people, and I will speak to us because I am one of you, we sometimes don't audibly say this, but we think it in our heart. Well, I'm not like the meth head down the street, right? So God must clearly be glad I'm on His team. What's the problem with that? The problem is, in the presence of a holy God, we're all crackheads, right? We're all meth heads. <laughs> I mean, your, your addiction may look different than the one down the road, but let's be honest about it, right? Your sin exists as a rank offense to a holy God. 
and there is a shortcoming of these sacrifices in the Old Testament, let me see if I can illustrate this for you. Pretend with me for a minute. Pretend with me that you have a beautiful 16-year-old daughter. For some of you, you do. Let's pretend for a minute here. Your daughter has done great in school. Everything you've ever asked of her, she has done. She has been the best daughter you could have. And you've taught her how to drive, taken her down the street. She's very cautious. She's probably a better, if you were honest, but you wouldn't tell her this, but if you were honest, she's a little more cautious than even you are when she drives. You have no reason to necessarily think she'd be up to no good as she's always historically followed all the instructions that you've given. And she gets a text about a month after getting her license, making straight A's in school, heading to Vanderbilt or some other prestigious school. Friends say, you know, we're going to have a study session and a hangout session. Come on down, you know. And uh, bring your bring your car, right? Bring drive your parents' car down here and, and have, come hang out with me. Well, you got she, she runs in, she's excited. I got the text. I want to go hang out with my friends. Is it okay? Can I drive the car? You have no reason to say no. So you hand her the keys and you say, "Be back by ten o'clock." And off she goes. And as she's getting ready to leave, four miles up the road, there's another man getting ready to get in the car. This man's on a suspended license because he's had five DUIs. And he just finished off a fifth of vodka. And he gets in behind the wheel and about midway from where he's going and midway where she's going, their cars are just about to meet except that fifth of vodka makes them fall asleep at the wheel. And they collide head on. And she dies instantly. He lives, she dies. The police officers come to your home and they tell you your daughter has died in a car accident, and they've apprehended the man who was drunk driving killed her. How do you even process that? You're so riddled with guilt and with grief. You don't even have a category in your brain to process this with. They tell you that the man that hit her is in prison, but what solace is that really to the loss of your child? He gets out on bond. A couple weeks later, ring on the doorbell, knock on the door. It's the man at the door there who hit your daughter head on and killed her. And he's standing there, his hands behind his back, not looking at the ground. He looks up at you and he says, I'm not real sure how to fix things. So I brought you this in hopes that maybe it would help. And he reaches out from behind him and hands you a basket with a puppy in it. What's your reaction? You're so offended by the offering here that you don't even know where to start. There is no way a puppy in a basket replaces a son or a daughter. That doesn't work. What has been taken and the offense that has been caused, that doesn't fit into that category. In a similar fashion here, the blood of lambs and bulls and goats does not properly cover the offense of our sin before God. We are tempted 
to trust in ritual, empty religious ritual, in thinking that somehow it makes us in better standing with God. And it's no different than that guy standing on your porch trying to hand you a puppy to replace a child. See, our sin has caused such an offense to the holiness of God. What could that man say that would make you feel better? What could that man do to make you feel better? Right? You know, I'm... I think one of the most heinous, disgusting crimes that's happened since I've been pastoring here in this country was when the white supremacist, uh, Dylan Roof, 21-year-old supremacist, went to Charleston, South Carolina and shot up the uh, African-American Episcopal or Methodist Church. There. Eight brothers and sisters in Christ lost their life that day because of what this man did. And he... Did that on the evening of June 17, 2015. Funny enough, I was reading about that this week, and he said he almost didn't go through with killing them because they were so nice to him when they took him in that day. He said that about those people that he killed. And when they were sentencing him about two years later, he confessed to his charges, and he confessed in front of a jury and a judge And he snickered about killing those eight people in that church. And I was appalled by that. Absolutely appalled. There are not words to describe to you how disgusting that is to me. You know what? And then I began to think, you know, in those... The families of those who were murdered, they began to offer, you know, forgiveness, if not at least for their own sanity, so they would not become prisoners and bitter in their own hearts. And because God commands it. And because he needed it. But he wasn't interested in that. And then I began to think, what would it take? What what would be a response that would be worthy there, right? I mean, what if this guy was a was a billionaire. What if that guy with the puppy came to your door after killing your daughter and this guy after killing these eight members of this church? What if he gave every person there a million dollars? Would that be enough to replace and cover the offense in what they had done? Is that enough? What's enough? What's enough to cover your sin before God? What is enough to cover that debt that's created? What kind of a profound... Apology could be mustered in both those situations I described. I think all will find at best maybe sincere or heartfelt, but at worst we'll all look in disgust and snarl at it. In a similar fashion here, we're told in these first verses of this passage that it is not enough that this ritualistic system that they so want to return to here, that These offerings here that never cease, what does he say here? They're not even the true form. They're not even the true reality. They all point to the coming sacrifice of Jesus Christ. says here they had to be offered continually because they're not enough. They're not enough to cover your sin. 
look at them, see them for what they are. The sacrifices of the Old Testament, even though God had given the instruction to do it, all were foreshadows for what was to come. Much like, do you all remember when we were kids and you'd hang over, hang out with your cousins or friends and you'd do like shadow puppets like, you know, with a flashlight and you would see on the, on the wall, remember how fun that was to do those shadow puppets? The shadow is not the true form, is it? The hand is the true form. In many ways, that sacrificial system is just the shadow on the wall anticipating the true form, which is the cross of Jesus Christ and the ultimate sacrifice that would come there. Let's move forward here. So this is understanding how lost we truly are. And and sermons like this are important because I think that there is, particularly here in the Bible, we are tempted to trust in rituals. We are tempted to trust in doing instead of just accepting. I have pastored in the poorest parts of Bedford, Kentucky. I have stood in trailer park homes that are dilapidated and run down. I'm talking trailers that I think the state should have probably condemned. And I have portrayed the gospel and given people the gospel. I'm talking like fecal matter in the floor, bad situations, right? And I have stood in Floyd County, Indiana, one of the more affluent areas around there, and homes that were gated, multi-million dollar homes that were gated, and proclaimed the same gospel. And while no one would actually come out and say it, I fear deep within my heart that we are all, whether you're down there in Bedford, Kentucky, in a trailer that is full of fecal matter from your various animals you're not really able to take good care of, or if you're sitting in a high-rise mansion there in Floyd Knobs, Indiana, or you're sitting here in Elizabethan, right? It's, it's always funny to me in Kentucky, the rich people lived up on the hill and on the inclines. The poor people lived down on the flatland. Here it's reversed, right? The rich people live on the flatland. The poor people get shoved up, in the, up into the hills, right? Uh, I've noticed that here with the Section A housing and things like that. But it's, it's just reality here that uh, the, the attempt to do is so ingrained in our minds that we sometimes don't really even recognize it. I remember once I was pastoring this guy. He was done very well with his business. And he had a particular sin that he was inclined towards, and it was unfaithfulness to his wife. And when he would be unfaithful to her, and we would have to step in and try to work with him, it always came with a check. He would write a check for, I saw him one day write a check for $45,000 at the end of a service, like you and I would write a check for $4.50. Just like that, no problem. And we would tell him, this does not buy you any more favor. This does not put you in any better standing with God. The standing you have with God is because of the completed work of Jesus Christ. I I think in, deep in his heart, though, he struggled with, I'm going to have to just pay my way out of this one because I've messed up again. It's just, That $45,000 check, just like that puppy in the basket, just like that guy that shot up that church, it doesn't cover it, friends. It doesn't. You know, you think about our best person, the best Christian you ever met. I don't know who that is. I asked him on Wednesday night. I heard several names. Billy Graham was one that was said by several people. Billy Graham, on his best day, in his best year, in his best month, even the best works he could do are still far short and just... Filthy rags before a holy God. The first part here, he tells us 
how lost we are and how our own efforts are futile. The next part here, beginning in verse 5, he turns and he tells us here, he tells us in these verses the solution to this problem. He begins by quoting Psalm 50. Now let me, or, or Psalm 40, let me say something here. This is not the heart of this text and it's not the heart of this uh, sermon today, but it is important. And I do not like red letter edition Bibles. I have not liked them for some time. And this text points to a good reason why. See, <clears throat> what are we tempted to do with red letters when we see them in there? Think, oh, these are more important than the black letters, right? Well, in this passage today, the author is telling us what? Psalm 40 would, would be in the Old Testament what color? Black. But then he says that Jesus quotes it in the New Testament, so when it comes off the lips of Jesus, what color would it be in the New Testament in a red-letter Bible? Be red. Here is the reality of it. Every word, every letter of the Bible from the first in the beginning in Genesis to the last amen of Revelation is of equal importance and weight. And so in this particular passage here where he quotes Psalm 40 and he and Jesus here comes off of his lips and he is instructing and telling them what? Here's what Christ says. He says here, consequently, when Christ comes to the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. Now, this is an interesting quote because it's actually, if you were to go back this afternoon and if you come back to church tonight, I'm going to take a look at Psalm 40 at 630 because I'm going to do the opposite testament from the morning. We're going to go more in depth with it. But <clears throat> it says an ear you've given me instead of a body. And the question is, why the change, right? Well, if you look at the Greek, the Septuagint, you look at the Hebrew Bible, it literally translates, an ear you have dug for me. That sounds kind of funny to us, doesn't it? An ear you have dug for me, or an ear you have made for me. Uh, this is an interesting little literature device, uh, and it is, some, it is a device that is used whenever we're parting, pointing to a part that represents the whole. You do this all the time, you just don't realize it, right? Let me give you an example of this. Another example of this is uh, whenever we see in the news, it says Washington is now going to crack down on methamphetamines or the war on terror. Washington represents what? It's the United States as a whole, doesn't it, right? If, the, if, we, if Washington says Washington is going to go to war with you know, Iran. Is just the people of Washington, D.C. going to war with Iran? No, it's the whole United States, isn't it? And we do the same thing even at a state level, right? Nashville has passed this law. Does that mean that only Nashville is going to abide by that law when we hear that? No, it means the whole state of Tennessee is going to have to abide by this new law. So in a similar fashion here, he's this whether it is an ear, a small part, which the emphasis here... When you look at the text, it is what? It's not the emphasis on the sacrifices and offerings. You see, killing little lambs and goats does not make God happy, right? I want you to think about that. You know, um, if you've ever been raised on a farm or you're an animal lover, think about the attachment you get to your animals, right? Imagine God, uh, that they're your dad, coming to you that time of year when it's time to make the atonement offering. We've got seven little ewes here, little female lambs. Son, you've got to pick one that lived in their home. They played with, 
took care of, maybe even helped and, and when they were a little infant. And we got to take it up, and the priest has to sacrifice it. I mean, those kids and those families had to be ready uh, for what was coming. It's not the sacrifice here, right? It's about the faith in the sacrifice pointing to the future of Christ. Look here, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Wasn't that God just loved to see animals die? That's not the issue. It's pointing out what is needed and necessary to cover the offense of sin. And here's the push of it, right? The ear connected to the body representing the whole body says, Behold, I have come to do your what? Your will, O God, as it is written in the book of the scroll, as written in the scroll of the book. When he said, You have neither desired nor taken pleasures and sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these offered according to the law, then behold, I have come to do your will. See that emphasis on doing God's will? Now, just like at the opening of the sermon, I asked you to close your eyes for a minute. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes again. Close your eyes again with me, and let's walk out of the temple gate. And as we're walking away, the smells and the sounds of the animals that were laid out to be offered is fading in the distance. And instead, we are coming across now a crowd who are gathered at the base of a hill called the Skull. And there on this hill, we see three Jews are being crucified with the Roman soldiers around them. And the crowd around them is yelling at them, screaming at them, mocking them. But there's something different about the one in the middle. The one in the middle is crying out in Psalm 22. The one in the middle is being offered vinegar. The one in the middle is the precious Lamb of God. The ultimate sacrifice. See His tattered back. See the blood running down His side. See Him say the last words, into your hands I commit my spirit and His body fall limp. See what comes to follow when the soldier declares, truly this man was the Son of God. Open your eyes now. Do you see? Do you see all these sacrifices this morning? They were all pointing to a faith in a future sacrifice that would come. You know, the only thing that is more offensive than our sin before a holy God, there's one thing more offensive than that, I think. And that is simply this. For God to send His Son to die on the cross for your sins. To offer that free, gift, that free gift to you. One that you just have to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, that this is for you. Believe in your heart. And the Bible tells us you will be saved. You will be cleansed from your sins forever. It is the only appropriate sacrifice that God will accept that will fix your debt before a holy God. The thing that is more offensive than simply your sin by itself is for an offer like this to be made. Offer for your sin, which is, as it says here in the last verse, what? Jesus Christ offered here once for what, church? For all. For all the ones sitting here today who will ever sit here. For all the ones that came before 
for all of your sins, past, present, and future, to see that offer to you today and to turn your nose and chuckle and walk away is more offensive. And you will be held account too. My question today though is, are you trusting in your empty religious rituals? Are you trusting in trying to do on your own? Or are you trusting in the perfect sacrifice that was once for all, forever? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this text. Thank you for the fact that we don't have to come to worship, which is more akin to a slaughterhouse than church that we know today. Thank you for the fact that we don't have to trust in what we can or can't do, but in what you have done for us. God, if there's anyone here today that's far from you, I pray that you would turn them to you, Lord, that you would save them, that they would accept, that they would confess with their mouth. Lord, we know that confession and belief go together. You cannot have belief without confession, and you cannot have confession without belief. Lord, if there's any here today who have never confessed, who have never truly believed. Sure, they played for a long time, but they've never really done it. Won't you bring them to yourself today? Bring them to the end of their self in the beginning of the world. I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.